right, well, good morning. I think this is on. Let me know if it's not. Uh, so glad to see all of you this morning. As Lenny already shared, uh, pastor's away with his family in Maine. Um, Elder Mike is also away with his family down the shore. And full disclosure, after this sermon, my family will be joining them. So I'm sorry if that sounds like we're rubbing it in, that we're all getting away. Uh, but I am saying it because we would love your prayers, not just for safety and health, but that God let that be the time it needs to be, that the elders of this church can recharge, can spend time with their family, can hear from God. Uh, certainly pray for Lenny as well, as he'll be back holding the fort. Uh, we have no doubt he can, but I'd much prefer God not put him in a position to have to. So we appreciate your prayers, and I am very thankful for the honor that I have of sharing God's word with you this morning. I'm going to be sharing a passage that's been on my heart quite often uh, over the last, I don't know, year or so, and not because I've chosen to meditate on it, but because it just keeps popping into my mind with everything that's going on around us. Uh, it is in Romans 1, so some of you already know where I'm going with this, but we will be reading Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. Uh, we will read it. I'll share what I think is obviously the reason that it's been on my heart, but then more importantly share with you uh, how God used that to speak further truth to me that I can now share with you. So if we can all rise in honor of reading God's word, we will read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or gave thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree, decree that those who practice such things are, deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You may be seated. Don't exactly have to be a Bible scholar to see why this passage has come to my mind quite often. Uh, we are living it. A uh, day does not go by where it seems like we wake up and find out how the world has come to a new depth of depravity, a new level of lawlessness, a, new, a, a stronger 
desire to just directly rebel against the things of God. And out of all those verses, i got to say the last one is the one that really speaks to me the most. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's where we are right now. The world is not content to just shift the boundaries of morality. They want to drag us along with them, and unfortunately they are many times way too successful in that effort. Uh, it is no secret that more and more churches are preaching less and less of the word of God because they don't want to seem unloving. They don't want to seem intolerant. They don't want to face the backlash that might come with The reason doesn't matter. When the children of God are not reading and preaching the word of God, something is wrong. So I'll be totally honest with you. One reason why I felt led to preach this passage today is to make sure that everybody in my church body knows it exists. That while the world is out there telling us to be woke and intolerant, I mean, to not, and to be tolerant and to know our own truth, you need to know that there is only one truth to know. That God does have an opinion on what's going on in the world, and he is not happy about it, and he doesn't use some clinical diagnosis or some genetic pattern to say, oh, that's okay, it's not your fault. The clinical diagnosis that God gives is sin. This passage makes it ridiculously clear that man has chosen to go against God. That they should be able to look up in the sky and know that there is a God, and they purposely and willfully suppress that knowledge inside of them. And because of them, they choose to go against God. They choose their own wisdom over God's. That's what leads to worshiping the creature over the creator. That's what leads to thinking they're wise while they're really fools. That's what leads to all levels of sexual immorality and just overall sinfulness and depravity. What we are living in, you have to know the Bible speaks about. The Bible speaks against. The world wants to say that God is love and he understands and he just wants us to be happy. You cannot fall for that. You need to know that Paul makes it very clear and in other passages as well that God's wrath is on our sinful society. This passage started with, for the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There is no denying that. But before you think I'm going to spend the next 40 minutes bashing the world, uh, please know that's what the lawyer in me wants to do. Please know that's what the conservative in me wants to do. Please know that's what the Italian in me wants to do. And please know that the Christian in me cannot do that. Because I have to be true to God's word. And as much as my natural instinct is to read those passages and see that it starts with, for the wrath of God is and almost not even care what comes after that. Preach it, Paul! I don't know if you noticed, but Paul talks about how the wrath of God is revealed and then doesn't mention once anything that I would consider wrath. There is no mention in that passage about hell, judgment, brimstone, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there is in the Bible. I'm not saying those don't exist. But I find it very interesting that the passage that God kept laying on my heart for when I get so mad about what I see around me and where I want to hear about God's wrath. Do you know the only wrath that's actually mentioned there is that God lets them do what they want to do? That's it. According to this passage, the way God's wrath is revealed against the world is that he says, fine, go ahead. Verse 24, he says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts, 
to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then in verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then in verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. If you see any other wrath in there, you let me know. But I really had to stop and think about that for a second. <laughs> Paul went out of his way. I mean, that's half the chapter. Half the chapter of Romans 1 was Paul talking about God's wrath on the world and pretty much saying, you know what his wrath is? He just lets them go and do what they want to do. It made me look at the passage completely differently because it made me think of the parent who has the rebellious child and tries so hard and does everything they can for that kid until the day comes and he says, fine, go do it. It's not going to end well. You don't trust me, you see where this road leads you. And that really saddened me. It made me realize that Paul wasn't ranting on the world as much as he was just stating a fact, that the wrath of God is revealed in the fact that he just gives them what they thought they wanted all along. But what's interesting is if we back up just one verse, we started in verse 18. If we look in verse 17, before Paul ever got to it, he said, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, I'd heard those verses before. I, I knew what that verse said. But I'll be honest. I guess it was my lack of really breaking down the word. I never put them together. I never realized that before God ever talked about how the wrath was revealed, he talked about how his righteousness was revealed. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And to know what it is, obviously, we go back one more verse to the very popular Romans 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, do I recommend reading your Bible backwards? No, it is not a good study method, but it is how God spoke to my heart. He took a passage where I just assumed I knew what it meant because I'm just so fed up with everything I see here and said, actually, John, look at what it's really saying. When we read it in order, Paul starts by saying that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to salvation and it is what God uses to reveal his righteousness to his children. Then he says, and we can tell that the wrath of God is on them because he just let them go. Not that he won't let them have his right. They don't want it. They don't want it. Then you go do your thing. But you know something? It's not about them. It's about us. I don't care if half the chapter is, sounds like it's bashing the world. You look at Romans chapter 2, it starts right off the bat and says, and you, man, you don't judge them because you're just as bad. You might not do those things, but you show partiality, and you put your faith in the law. And Paul's pretty much bashing everybody, to be honest. But he's saying, but what I believe, I'm not ashamed in it. I don't care what's going on around me. I don't care what circumstance. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And what I titled this sermon is, Are You Not Ashamed? And you're going to see not ashamed in quotes. I, I really struggled with how I wanted to word this because I know I overthink things. But without the quotes, I'm Italian, I talk with my hands, you ready? All that would be saying without the quotes is, are you not ashamed? Ashamed sets a very low bar. It's almost like Paul would be saying, yeah, guys, it really stinks out here. But, you know, I mean, I'm not ashamed. We know that's not what he's saying. We're not saying that Paul isn't at the depths of... He's saying the exact opposite. When Paul says he is not ashamed, I almost want that to be one big word. He's not setting the bar here. He's setting the bar here. 
He's saying, I don't care what's going on in the world. I don't care what they preach. I don't care what they think. I don't care what anybody else has to say. I've got the gospel of Christ. And I am not ashamed of it. So some of you, I'm sorry, if you snuck in the back door hoping nobody noticed you, then yeah, you've got to ask yourself, are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? If you have your Peter moments where somebody comes up to you and asks if you're a Christian, I do not know that man, then maybe you have to deal with, are you ashamed of Christ? I don't know. I am hoping that that's not the case for everyone in here. That no one here has to search their heart to see if they're actually ashamed of Christ. But my question isn't, are you not ashamed? It's can you truly say that you are not ashamed? That you can wear that, I don't want to say a badge of honor, but just a rallying cry, a, a, a mantra. We will not be ashamed. We are not ashamed, no matter what the world says about us, no matter what the world wants to do to us, we are not ashamed. That's what God spoke to me through Romans 1. To stop pointing the finger this way and to start pointing it this way. To stop doing things that lead to the wrath of man when I know that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And while this didn't happen to me, I pray for some of you that you stop having some itching ears and maybe considering what the world has to say. No, no. What is going around us, God is allowing to go on around us, and whether you, I don't know what to tell you, it's for our benefit. It might not feel like it, but it is with the purpose that we grow stronger and closer to him. Paul was able to say, I am not ashamed. I strive to say, I am not ashamed. And through this sermon, there are areas that I realize I need to work on. But my prayer is that each one of you not listen to me and my antics. I know I dance up here, I don't mean it, but... It's got to be the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart. If you can walk out of here confidently saying, I am not ashamed, then amen, keep doing what you're doing. But if there's a chance that there are some areas that maybe you never even saw before and you realize it's kind of lowered your definition of what not ashamed means, my prayer is that you give that over to God and that you allow it to get it where he deserves it to be. All right, so let's pray, and I'll share with you what God has laid on my heart. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for your word, I thank you for your spirit, and most of all, I thank you for choosing me to be your child. Lord, I could so easily have been in the second half of Romans 1. If you had not opened my eyes, I would be doing maybe not all of those things, but certainly things that would be worthy of your wrath. But your son died for me, your spirit opened my eyes to that fact, and now I know that my sins are forgiven and that I just have to live a life that doesn't just say I'm not ashamed, but that shows the world and my church and most importantly you, that I am not ashamed. I thank you for every brother and sister that you brought here today, Lord, and I know some may not be your children yet. Oh, I pray that today be the day that you open their eyes, Lord, that they understand what we are not ashamed of, that we live lives that show that we're not ashamed and that they desire to have what we have, not because we're so awesome, but because you're so awesome. Lord, that is my prayer, and I thank you that you're sovereign and you can do whatever you see fit to do, and I just pray you bless these words today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we'll spend the next half hour or so defining what I believe Paul meant when he said he is not ashamed of the gospel, okay? I don't think we can define being not ashamed of the gospel until we first define the gospel. I think we make a mistake of thinking the gospel is one specific thing and we forget gospel just means good news. And by definition, good news is very often in the eye of the beholder. Agreed? There are plenty of people out there who have good news to share and they call it the gospel and unfortunately, too often we fall for it. 
uh, Paul commented on this in the book of Galatians. Right off the bat, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul told the Galatians, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So Paul was just a very an awesome orator. He, he, was, he just knew how to put the thoughts that God laid on, on his heart so well. And in, in those three little verses, he made it so clear, no, there's not a bunch of true gospels. There's only one true gospel. But you better believe there's a whole lot of gospels out there. If you don't know this, a vast portion of, I'll even say of the whole Bible, but especially of the epistles. If you don't know what an epistle is, it's a letter that was written to a church body. You would be shocked to know how much, I didn't break it down, but how much of the epistles revolve around false doctrine. Warning about falling for false doctrine, false teaching. It uses words like, it crept in. We don't know how it crept in, but I'm pretty sure it crept in as a gospel. Pretty sure somebody came in with some good news that they thought the people would want to hear. And sure enough, they wanted to hear it. And next thing you know, Paul has to write it. Oh, geez, you guys, come on. What are you doing? That's a different gospel. That's not the gospel. If we're going to say that we are not ashamed of the gospel, we got to make sure that we're talking about the right gospel. Is that fair? So we have to say, oh, before I get to it, Joel Osteen preaches a gospel. Whether you like it or not, he does. If you ask him, he'll tell you he preaches a gospel. He preaches that God loves you and he wants what's best for you. He just openly admits that he kind of avoids the topic of hell because, you know, that's going to turn people off. And yeah, you know, someone else can share that with them, but I'm just trying to get him in the door. He'll say he preaches a gospel. I disagree. I don't think you can preach this without God's righteous judgment. But to him, it's a gospel. That's my point. Andy Stanley, the son of Charles Stanley, He's already said, it's okay to admit there's mistakes in here. And that we should probably stay away from the Old Testament because God's so judgy there. And then he said, no, I, I don't even want to. It, it's, it's not. And then he said, well, maybe we should stop preaching the Bible so much and focus on the resurrection. Now, I don't know how you can focus on the resurrection without focusing on the Bible, but if it sounds like I'm bashing someone, I'm telling you things that people out there are believing. These men are nationally known for a reason. They are presenting gospels that sure sound great as long as you never open this up. And that's no good. So my first question, are you, are you not ashamed of the gospel? We've got to ask ourselves, are we not ashamed of the doctrine of the gospel? Oh, here he goes with doctrine again. I was joking with someone the other day that we did an unofficial study in the church and found out we use the word doctrine every 2.4 seconds. It's not true, but I hope it feels that way. We are. We're constantly talking about doctrine, but that's because it's so important. Doctrine is the teaching of God. How are you supposed to say that you're not ashamed of the gospel if you don't even know what the gospel is? Or you pick and choose the parts of the gospel that you like. It doesn't work that way. On some level, if you're not going to accept all of this, then you are ashamed of the gospel. You're just going to show the pieces that you think people hear or the things you agree with. It's no good. Okay, I was talking with a Christian brother, uh, I guess a little bit ago now, and no, it wasn't anyone in this church, but someone that I believe is a Christian. And no, we weren't discussing something as important as how to get saved, but I felt it was a pretty 
foundational truth in the Bible. And by the end of the conversation, he says, you know, John, you really gave me a lot to think about. A lot of verses I didn't realize are in the Bible. I mean, I don't think it's going to change my mind on the subject, but still, thanks. I was like, what? I mean, I just kind of left it at that because I was not, I probably would not have responded correctly. But really? Like this, I really believe, is another brother. But I just said some things that, and, and, and showed they were in the Bible, and, you know, he didn't really like them, so. But, but, but thanks. My daughter, who apparently doesn't fall far from the tree, um, she went to a Christian camp last week, had a great time. She said there were great speakers. She said, Dad, the only thing that frustrated me is we do these breakout groups, and, you know, we, we would talk about certain things, and I would say what I believe, and, you know, I, 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 I would, like, have a verse to back it up and stuff. And, and, like, the people around me say, oh, yeah, I don't believe that. And I'd say, but, but why? It's what the Bible said. Well, yeah, I, I guess, but no, I, I, I believe this. So I guess she has a bit of the lawyer in her that, <laughs> that I passed down. But I'm telling you, you know, it's, at least she was surrounded by kids. You know, kids, they, they, they don't always know their faith. I, I got to pray that God opens their eyes to the truths that are in here. But we're not kids, right? We've got to decide. <laughs> Are we going to accept what's in here or just the parts that we like, just the parts we understand, just the parts that we think aren't going to get us in trouble? If I can quote the great Frank Reagan, any Blue Bloods fans out there? Okay, if you don't know who that is, just think Magnum P.I. because it's Tom Selleck, okay? But I was watching an episode the other day, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was a really powerful thought. It stuck with me. It was, we all face times where there's a price to pay regarding our beliefs. The only question is if we pay for them or with them. I thought that was so deep. Like, if your mind isn't ready, it's not 12 o'clock yet, I'll try to break it down for you. But all of us, just by definition of growing up, there are times when there's some situation or some circumstance that, that seems to conflict with what we believe, challenges what we believe, questions what we believe, and we are at a fork in the road. We are either going to stand on what we believe, pay for what we believe, whatever consequence is necessary because we believe it, or we're going to pay with what we believe. We're going to compromise. We're going to say, all right, maybe I wasn't as, okay, so maybe that isn't, yeah, I guess I can see it that way. And next thing you know, you're not paying for your beliefs, you are paying with your beliefs. Now, is that a Christian show? No, it's wholesome. But oh my goodness, was he spot on. The church is called to pay for their beliefs. But too often we pay with our beliefs. And we get patted on the back for doing it because then we look loving and we look inclusive and we look this and we look that. And God's up in heaven saying, what are you doing? I've revealed truth to you. Are you ashamed of my doctrine? I mean, I hope the answer is no. But I don't want it down. Oh, well, I'm not ashamed. I just don't really like talking about it much. No, we are not ashamed. We don't rub it in people's faces. No, we do it in love. But if it is in here, we need to preach it. And if we need to preach it, we need to know what's in here. Agreed? So that's what took me to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. Again, I don't know why, but God has just been, we're going to do this backwards. Once again, we're going to go backwards. Got it? Look at that verse. That's the last verse, that we be complete and thoroughly equipped. Who wouldn't want that? But to be thoroughly equipped 
and complete, as we go back to verse 16, it makes sense that we need instruction in righteousness. We're not there, right? We need to grow in our faith so that we can be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. But how am I supposed to grow in my righteousness if I'm never corrected? If I just think that what I'm doing is fine and I'm not pointed in the right direction. And how am I supposed to be corrected if I'm not reproved? Which, you know, means, hey, what are you doing? Okay, the Bible tells you what you're doing wrong, but then tells you how to correct it. But how am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to correct if I don't have doctrine? Like, it all leads to doctrine. The ESV says teaching. I'm, we need to know what's in the Word of God before we walk around saying that we're not ashamed of what's in the Word of God. Now, once it's in there, you have to submit to it. Too often we do know what's in there, and we just don't like it. So, no. but, but we have to know what's in here, and we have to be willing to stand for it. So I'm just going to read some numbers to you. You are very much going to think I'm judging you, and all I can tell you is I'm not. I'm a math teacher. I'm going to throw some numbers out there, and you do with them as you see fit. Okay, because I can make comments about the world in general. I can make comments about the church in general, but you guys are my heart. This church is my heart. So post-pandemic, we have had about 120 people in the sanctuary on any given Sunday. Lower than it was before the pandemic, but I'm still very thankful for every person that God brings in the church. So just remember that number, 120, okay? We have about 40 people from kids up to adult that come to Sunday school. So that's about one-third of the people who show up in the sanctuary to hear doctrine that show up an hour earlier to learn in Sunday school. And we have about 30 people that come to the night service to get a little more doctrine. All right, John, I get it. I'm a horrible Christian. Listen, I'm just giving you numbers. Maybe you do other things. I don't know. Maybe you have 500 Bible studies. and I don't know. I'm just talking numbers. We have 120 people who come here to hear doctrine, but about a third of them come to Sunday school and about a quarter of them come to night service. So if you are not getting your doctrine, first of all, if you're only getting it for 45 minutes a week, I don't know what you think you're getting anyway. But God's day is special. So, again, would I like to see more people come to Sunday school? Yes, because that's an environment where it's more interactive and you can ask questions and it just, it can go down roads that a sermon can't. And would I like to see you come out to night service? Yes, and I admit, those of you who have come to night service, night service can get kind of heady. We don't mean for it to, but we're going through the Bible. We are giving this Bible the attention and respect it deserves. We are currently in Exodus 28. We just learned about the priest's garments. Praise God that pastor was able to preach a sermon on that because I have no idea what I would have said. It's not easy stuff, but can I ask you right now that if you're not coming to night service because we're in Exodus 28, then where else are you ever going to read Exodus 28? Are you going to spend your whole life not caring what Exodus 28 has to say? Or what Habakkuk has to say? Or what Malachi has to say? Or what Haggai has to say? Or what Amos has to say? You know why I picked those books? Because for the longest time in my life, I didn't know what they had to say either. And I'm not saying I have those books memorized yet, but oh my goodness, has God spoken to me in every single one of them. Oh my goodness, has he strengthened my faith? Has he strengthened my understanding in passages that were there all along? I just never exposed myself to it. So if you think there's going to be a day, we're done with 28, I'll preach 29 in a couple weeks. If you're afraid there's a day that you're never going to read Exodus 29, then how about come out and read it with us so that you can have somebody who prepared for months explain it to you instead of trying to figure it out on your own. 
Am I yelling? Yes, but am I yelling in judgment? Not at all. I'm ashamed of myself that I'm not further along in, in understanding doctrine. But the question is, what are you doing? That's all I'm asking. Maybe you can't come to Sunday school. Maybe you work Sunday. I don't know. I only know the numbers that are in front of me, but all you only know, well, yeah, I do go to service, and whatever comes after that is between you and God. But if I can say something that God encouraged me with uh, yesterday, I told you that my daughter uh, went on a Christian retreat. It was through Hawthorne Gospels, so we had to go to Hawthorne to pick her up yesterday. And don't you know, in the parking lot, I see my beautiful sisters in Christ, Damaris and Shanintra. Oh, my goodness. Now, Damaris didn't recognize me. I'm going to call her out on that. But, but Shanintra straightened her out, so it's okay. Hey, ladies, what are you doing here? Oh, we just got out of an apologetics conference. Now, I know that sounds, I mean, that does. That sounds very fancy. But just know that apologetics means the ability to defend your faith. And you guys didn't know what I was going to preach on, but God did. And God knew the, when I say lump in my stomach, that's not the right phrase. I mean it in a very good way. The, the chills, oh, Lord, thank you. You know, thank you that I do believe that my body isn't just showing up for 45 minutes and then never opening your, no. I was so thankful to see the two of my sisters are out there spending a Saturday morning learning how to defend this stuff. You can't defend it if you don't know it. It reminded me of what 1 Peter 3.15 says. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. I know some of you are going to disagree. We can talk later. But as far as I'm concerned, that is the most explicit call to evangelism in the entire Bible. Don't give me the Great Commission because that was said to disciples and we imply that it's to the church as well. But as far as a direct command, I'm not commanded to go across the street and ring my neighbor's bell. But this says whether I ring their bell or they ring mine, I better be ready. I better be ready to defend the hope, the reason, a reason for the hope that is in me. Does that mean that I know the whole thing front to back? No. But are some of us interpret this as, well, yeah, I mean, I could explain how Jesus died on the cross. I'm so sorry if that sounded sarcastic because I would never mean it that way. But if they asked me anything else, I wouldn't know what to say. Well, can you work on it? That's a command. Be ready. God will give you the opportunities. You don't got to break people's doors down. But he'll make sure that you get a chance to defend this thing. He'll make sure that you get a chance to show that you are not ashamed of what's in here, despite what the world might say, despite what other Christians might say. If it's in here, you believe it, you're going to stand by it, you're going to defend it, because you are not ashamed. Now, if you are ashamed, then there's no need to defend it, obviously. But there's a difference between I don't want to defend it and actually I can't defend it. Don't be somebody who wishes they could. Put in the effort. The Holy Spirit is in you if you're a child of God. Maybe you think you can't do it, but you think he can't do it? Listen, he can have a verse pop into your mind that you've never read before, but why should he have to do that? Why can't he have a verse pop into your mind that you were just studying in Sunday school this week? Why can't he have a reaction in you when you want to do one thing, but you do something else because you remember the sermon from last Sunday night? Like, give God something to work with. He doesn't need it, but why wouldn't we? If you want to say that you are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, then the first thing you have got to say is you are not ashamed of the doctrine. You are not ashamed of what it says, and you are not ashamed to admit that we can always learn more. Okay, that's number one. Number one, don't be ashamed. Are you not ashamed of the doctrine of the gospel? 
But then Paul goes on to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. So my second question is, are you not ashamed of the power of the gospel? John, what in the world? Of course I'm not ashamed of power. Like, power is awesome. Yeah, depending what you do with it. Agreed? Um, I'm going to put you through a little test, and yes, the lawyer and me will be backing you in a corner, but just at least I'm admitting it up front. Let's look at Hebrews 4.12, okay? If you are not ashamed of doctrine, it means any verse that pops up on this screen, you will amen, okay? For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a popular verse for a lot of people, but maybe some of you hadn't heard it before. So I just highlighted the word powerful. For the word of God is living and powerful. If you disagree with that, then I guess you have a problem with the doctrine of the gospel. But if you amen that, yes, oh, it is definitely living and powerful, then great. Okay, just lock that away. You agree, it's powerful. Next verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 4. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, again, this doesn't explicitly mention the Bible, the gospel, but it is definitely one of our weapons. It's what the Holy Spirit uses, and it says that it has divine power to destroy strongholds. Whether those strongholds are false teachings, whether those strongholds are things you struggle with that you think you can never get over, this has the power to give you what you need to tear that down and grow as a Christian. If you disagree with the doctrine, that's another story. But I don't see anybody getting up and leaving. I hope you all agree, yeah, John, I get it. This is powerful. It's living and powerful. It's powerful to destroy strongholds. We already read it's what makes us complete. It's what makes us thoroughly equipped. This thing is powerful. Amen. Amen. Prove it. What do you mean prove it? It's right there on the page, John. It obviously says it. Don't tell me what it says. This is just words on the page until they're not. The only way you can prove that this is powerful is by being able to point to your life and show places where it was powerful. You can say that you're not ashamed of the power, but guess what? If you're not letting it do what it should be doing in your life, then, yeah, in some levels you are ashamed of it. Whether it's because you don't think it can. Oh, you know it can, but oh, I don't know if it can. We've all been there. We want to trust it so bad, we just don't know if we can. No, you are not ashamed of this power. If it says it can give it to you, it can give it to you. I know, John, it's just I'm afraid of what's going to happen if it does. I'm sorry. I, I know at this point a lot of you probably don't even remember her. But Miss Eleanor, for those of you who were around long enough, a woman who came to this church for decades way before me, and I guarantee you she was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. That woman said what needed to be said, when it needed to be said, whether you wanted to hear it or not. Amen to that. But she was also way too comfortable in being what she called herself a stubborn Italian. She wore it as a badge of honor. And unfortunately, she and I had quite a few talks, and probably some of you as well, in how she knew the Bible said she should forgive. And she knew it was in her best interest to forgive. And to be honest, she knew that God would probably do a work in her life if she forgave. But she blatantly said, I'm never going to forgive my sister. Now, I don't remember why, and why doesn't matter. But this is somebody who I know claimed these truths. I know believed every one of them, but there were certain doors that she just was not opening to God. 
And to her credit, at least she was admitting it. I I'm not saying this stuff to bash Eleanor. She she's in God's presence now. She could care less what I'm saying. I'm just saying it because I wonder how many of us can relate. How many of us come to church every Sunday believing the doctrine that's in here, amening everything that's said and not just a, a little bit. No, I, you really believe it. But when push comes to shove, you're not seeing changes in your life because there's a disconnect between what you believe it can do and between what you're allowing it to do. That's no good. If you are going to say that you are not ashamed of the power, then there's got to be ways that that power is working in you. Because if it's not working in you, it's either this fault or it's this fault. And I think we know which one it is. Now, is it easy? No. I, I'm actually thrilled to tell you that me and Lenny got together this week and this kind of came up in conversation about how hard it is to get up in this pulpit and to teach Sunday schools, and to teach community groups, because we know what we're preaching is true. We don't know what you guys think. We, we just throw it out there. Only you could, but we know it's true. We know it's true. We know it's powerful. So how in the world are we not perfect? Like, how am I supposed to yell at you guys, get better at this stuff, when all I got to do is look in the mirror and say, oh my goodness, what's wrong with me? And I know it's not just me. I know Paul does the same thing in Romans 7. It's not easy. I'm not trying to bash you or make you or belittle you. But only you know if you're really putting in the effort to let this thing really have power in your life. How sad that the world they could care less about this. But you guys got up on a Sunday morning in July. I gotta think you care. And to care and to believe and to not be ashamed of it. But then when push comes to shove, yeah, but that's okay. I'm still gonna struggle with this. I'm still gonna struggle with that. I'm still gonna I'm sorry, I'm just telling you. Then, then don't tell everybody how you're not ashamed of it. You have got to allow this, the opportunity to truly work in your life. Uh, again, a lot of you, definitely a lot of you don't remember Pastor Pete, but that's your loss, I'm just going to tell you. For those of you out there who remember Pastor Peter Brasiliano, oh my goodness. I mean, the man died a good 20 years ago, right? Oh, how in the world he's still having an impact on my life. But that man, a short, fiery Italian, I guess the Italians, I don't know. There's a running theme here. But man, once again, he preached what needed to be heard. And I'll be honest, I don't know how many times I heard him preach. I only remember conviction. I don't mean that in a bad way, but I don't remember a comforting sermon. I don't remember a feel-good sermon. Every sermon cut right to my heart. Whether that was his purpose or just God's work in my life, those sermons were hard to hear. But can I tell you, I was always upset when they were over. Because I knew he was preaching truth. And I knew he was preaching from a place of love. That he wasn't yelling at everybody. He just wanted so badly. Uh, he ended up dying of cancer. But he was in the power of God until the day God took him home. Ministering. Preaching. Doing everything he could to show that he was not ashamed of the gospel. The doctrine. But also not ashamed of its power. And please know that's all I'm trying to do here. My fear is that I'm so fiery and so yelling at you that you're going to walk out of here thinking, yeah, you're right, John, I'm no good. Well, guess what? I'm no good either. That's the point. We need this power. We need this power to give us victory in areas of our life that we think we can never have victory. We need this power in order to break down strongholds in our life that we never think we're going to be able to break them down. We're so willing to admit we can't do it, but then for some reason we don't let this do it either. So I don't know what it's going to look like. 
Sometimes people just have amazing victory, and next thing you know, something they used to struggle with, they're no problem at all. And then other times, it's going to be a struggle for the rest of your life, but are you giving it over to God? And are you truly, not just saying that you're not ashamed of the power in this gospel, but that you're truly proving it? Because God is doing work in your life. And yeah, you're not perfect, but even people who know who you used to be and know who you are now cannot deny, wow, that stuff's really working. That's how we show. Not just by knowing the doctrine. It's great when verses pop into mind and you can defend your faith and you can, but oh my goodness, when you are living it out on the good days and the bad days, that is by far the most effective way to show that you are not ashamed of the doctrine of the gospel and that you are not ashamed of the power of the gospel. Okay, last one. Last one, the last thing I want us to consider is, are we ashamed of the calling of the gospel? Okay? Um, uh, whoever's doing the slides, I'm going to do a little bit out of order. I think Romans 1, 14, 15 is a little bit lower. Um, actually, no, I'm not. I'm sorry. I want to explain to you guys where I'm getting calling from, but before I do... I understand that the first and foremost calling of the gospel is a call of salvation. It would be very much my, my error, my loss, to not tell you that by far the first calling that you have to be not ashamed of is the call to become a Christian. Okay, If you are ashamed of the call of the gospel, then you are still under the wrath that's in Romans 1 and everything else. Okay, John 3.18 says clearly, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Son. So this isn't about, are you going to, you know, what choice am I going to make? Am I going to get saved or am I going to be condemned? No, we're all already condemned. we're, We're all sinners. You have to respond to the calling of the gospel, allow Christ to die, who already died for your sins, accept that payment, Realize that there's nothing you can do to earn your way to heaven, but that Christ's blood pays it all. I hate that I'm using cliches here, because if you're new to this stuff, that might have flown right over your head, but it's up to you to allow the Holy Spirit to guide you to me, to someone else in this church, to someone else they brought into your life. You have to make sure that you respond correctly to the salvation call of the gospel. And that's another thing he showed me that I'm so thankful for. Romans 1, the end of Romans 1, did not bash certain people. Please know that. Okay? It bashed a mindset. And I thank God that there were people, and there's probably some in this room right now, who once were beautifully, perfectly described by the end of Romans 1, until God called them. Until God did a mighty work in their life. Some of you remember Andrew. We know he he passed away recently. But, oh, he was so good at it, saying his life, oh, He would say those Romans 1 people were nothing compared to him. But man, when God grabbed him and opened his eyes and he responded to that calling and made sure that he was not ashamed of that calling and he submitted himself and admitted his own inability to save himself, his whole life changed. He still had to pay consequences from his former life. He ended up dying because of bodily ailments that he got from his former life. But the amount of time God gave him, he was praising doctrine. He was praising its power and he was praising its calling. So I don't mean to gloss over that. Obviously, I'm I'm somewhat selfishly hoping that all of you are already saved. How beautiful would that be if not one person in this room right now needs to give their life to Christ? 
But if that's true, it doesn't change the fact that Paul was not ashamed of his calling. Now, if we look at Romans 1, 14 and 15, it's the last time we go backwards, I, I promise. Paul says, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome also. This was Paul not saying that he actually owes the Greeks and barbarians anything. He barely knew them. He didn't owe them anything, but he knew God's calling on his life. And he knew that if he did not submit to God's calling in his life, that those Greeks and those barbarians would not get what they're supposed to get based on God's plan. I hope that's making sense. The only flip side I can give you is Jonah, right? Jonah was somebody who was a prophet, so he knew doctrine, and he definitely knew the power of God because that's what bothered him. It's like, I'm not going to go preach to those Ninevites. Are you nuts? If I preach to them, God's going to save them all. He knew the power, but he was ashamed of the calling. So he ran in the other direction as far as he could, ended up in the belly of a great fish, ended up spit up. On, I mean, God's going to do what God's going to do. Don't make them. Okay, I promise you that God is not going to help you grow in doctrine and grow in power. I, I picture like a, a hose that has a kink in it, and the water pressure builds and builds and builds. God's not going to do that. Are you nuts? God's not going to keep showing truths to your heart and giving you the power to implement those truths without it somehow flowing out into the world around you. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable service, as the King James would say. I love that idea of a living sacrifice because it really means, Lord, here I am. He could have said a dead sacrifice. I mean, let's be honest. God could have said, you want to show me how much you love me? Kill yourself. He, he could have. He's God. He can say whatever he wants. But you know what he says? You want to show me how much you love me? Kill yourself. And he puts it in quotes. Because he doesn't actually want us to die, but he wants us to die to self. He wants us to submit to his calling. It's what um, Paul explains in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know I've preached on this before, but how beautiful, actually how confusing, how confusing and beautiful is it that Paul says it is no longer I who live, and the life that I now live, that's what a living sacrifice is. As long as you're on this earth, yes, you're living, but you're living as a sacrifice to God. Are we commanded to do it? Yes. But is it also a way to show that we are not ashamed? Yes. I don't know what God is doing in Tom's life, but I am so thankful that he submitted to the calling to go spend two weeks in Poland. I don't know what he's doing in my daughter's life, but I'm thankful for what he did during that Christian camp. I don't know what he's doing in my son's life, but I'm thankful for the opportunity he has to go to the orphanage and DR. Like, we're surrounded by these things. Look at the eldership. I, I hope all of you know Mike would desire to be a full-time pastor. God has not opened that door yet, but somehow with a full-time job, he is doing all the seminary stuff he has to do to meet the qualifications for a full-time pastor. He is following or submitting or not ashamed to the calling that God has laid on his heart. I hope you all know that Lenny took classes so that he could be certified in biblical counseling. Okay? Yes, he knows the word of God, but those classes have now given him whatever God wanted him to have so that he can offer 
a service to the body in a way that he wouldn't have if he didn't submit to the calling. So do I know what the calling for all of you are? Of course I don't. But in a way I do. We're called to be a living sacrifice. That as you say, you are not ashamed of the doctrine. And if it's in here, you're going to believe it, whether you understand it, whether you necessarily agree with it in your own human understanding. God said it. And because God said it, it has a power to not only help me up here, but to also help me here and make changes that I never thought would change. And once he's helping me here and he's helping me here, how is that not in preparation to send me wherever it is he's sending me? Uh, Miss Connie, if she's here today, heading off to a foreign country again to serve, and others of us, again, it's the workforce. It's the home. Anywhere. But are you a living sacrifice? Are you not ashamed of the calling that God lays on your heart, or are you just not ashamed? I don't really want to do it, but all right, well, I guess if I have to, no. Not ashamed. Not ashamed of doctrine. Not ashamed of its power. Not ashamed of its calling. You know I'm only a three-point guy, so I am done but I am going to tack one more in there. It doesn't count, though, because that would be four. 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. This whole sermon was about, are you ashamed? Your attitude towards the gospel, its doctrine, its power, and its calling. Can you say you are not ashamed? Because guess what? If you can't, then you probably are a shame. You like that, right? But it's one or the other. God's going to see to it. God's going to put us in positions where we are either going to show we're not ashamed or we're going to be ashamed. He's going to make sure that we're put in those conversations, that we're put in those situations. He's going to make sure that we are, have to choose between paying for our beliefs, which is what we should do, it doesn't matter. The disciples said that they, were, that they rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Not that they looked forward to suffering, but they were so glad that that suffering was for him. They paid for their beliefs. We pay with our beliefs. No good. Don't fall for the lies of the world. Are we going to grow in God's doctrine, God's teachings, or the world's? Are we going to drift like Hebrews 2 were, uh, warns against? Are we going to live in God's power? Or our own. We talk about hiding God's word in our heart. Yes? I think I've said this before. Our problem is sometimes we hide it so deep that we can't find it when we need it. That's no good. That's called growing in doctrine, and next thing you know, it has no impact on our life. Are we going to follow God's calling or go down our own path? Okay, Romans 1 makes it clear that if you want to go your own way, God will let you. Even as a Christian, Romans 1 wasn't referring to a Christian, but the Bible says... Very clear. You want to do it, go. but why? Why would we want to? Yes, we should be frustrated with the world around us, but I'm telling you, all of that chaos, if we allow it to, can strengthen our faith, can point us even closer to what God wants us to see, to what he wants us to do, to how he wants it to manifest in our life. So let us use the chaos around us as an opportunity to show the world, others, ourselves, and God that we are not ashamed of his doctrine, its power, and its calling for his glory. I can just pray that the Spirit spoke to your heart in a way that only he can. Let's pray. Lord, once again, um, all that...
preparation, and now this sermon is in the past. So all I can thank you for is what I know you've shown me and how it's spoken to my heart well before I ever got into this pulpit. Lord, my, the attitudes that need to change, the, the priorities that need to change, whatever it is, Lord, I want to say that I am not ashamed. I want to hold your name and your word on high, but it can't just be words in my mouth. So I pray for every person in this room, Lord, I, I, that we all can grow in doctrine, grow in your power, grow in obeying and submitting to your call. Lord, you want us to do that together. Those, those aren't supposed to just be individual, isolated things, but, but parts of a well-functioning body. Lord, again, I know I didn't give an altar call. I, I know that, but your, your spirit is all that matters. If you're speaking to a heart today, about wanting to not be ashamed, either to come to your salvation call or just to humbly submit in obedience. Lord, please help them seek out an elder, seek out someone who will gladly sit and speak with them and help them understand better what we preached on today, what your word says. And again, Lord, not just what it says, but why it says it. I'm sorry for the times that we take your word and make it say what we want it to say when really all that matters is what it's saying. Thank you for Paul's heart. Thank you for his desire to help your body grow. And I pray that we all uh, claim the same thing that he was so, so boldly claimed, that we are not ashamed of your gospel. I thank you, and I give this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. Let us stand as we close in doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.